0: Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Government is the problem. This will not stand. This will not stand this aggression against uh, Kuwait. Indeed, I did have a relationship with Mr. Lewinsky that was not appropriate. America is a strong force for peace. I know the human being and fish can coexist peacefully. And my vice president has shot someone. You smell what Barack is cooking. You didn't build that give you all a big kiss, the women and the men. I'll I'll even kiss the men. I'll kiss those big powerful men. Sit down, you'll hear what I have to say. You're listening to the Oil & Gas Geopolitics Podcast, the show for those who want a spirited, irreverent, humorous, and occasionally informative discussion on the latest geopolitical issues that are impacting the energy sector today. Here is your host, Jordan Driscoll. Welcome to the program, my huddled masses. I am the aforementioned Jordan Driscoll, your industry malcontent and ATM of reckless opinion. Grab yourself a cup of coffee. Let's get into it. So, a couple of items of housekeeping. Uh, First off, last couple of weeks show-wise been a little slow. Had a little bit of a summer break. Had some uh, other obligations I had to take care of that took priority, but we are back rolling and it's going to be good stuff. Uh, Secondly, we had a spate of Very kind reviews that have come out. So I'm going to say some thank yous right quick. Uh, Angela 88, you left a very nice review on iTunes. Thank you so much, Angela. I deeply appreciate it. Um, A LinkedIn message from Sean Cutter, who stated he and his wife were uh, officially declaring themselves listeners number 14 and 15. So there it is, folks. We are officially up to 15 listeners. And then we have uh, Mario Romero and a very nice compliment about the show also on LinkedIn, which I deeply appreciate that. Thank you so much. And uh, just this morning, I got one from Sebastian FL, who uh, left a very kind uh, review on iTunes as well. Thank you so much for that. You guys have no idea how much it means to me. It uh, truly means the world to know that folks enjoy this show and listen and, and took time out of their day to uh, hear what I have to say, which is crazy. Um, and then further time to go uh, leave a review. So, if you ever want to leave a review, please do. Deeply appreciated, um, uh, and even more so that you guys listen. So, thank you so much. All right. So, now that we've covered the uh, housekeeping, let's get into what we're talking about tonight. So, a few weeks ago, you may recall I mentioned that a listener, Lewis uh, Levin, asked me to do an episode on the Karish and quantum gas fields. Uh, which are in the Mediterranean right off the coast of Israel slash Lebanon. Now, at the time, I didn't know a whole lot about those and said I was going to need a few weeks to do some research, and I have done that. So that's what we're going to talk about this evening. Now, very briefly, uh, here's a couple of things to understand. The Koresh and Quantic gas fields are a series of natural gas fields in the eastern Mediterranean, and depending upon who you ask, they're either in Israeli waters or they're in Lebanese waters, but we'll talk a little bit more about that later on. So, the Koresh field was discovered in 2013, and a plan for development wasn't presented until 2017. It didn't start producing until late 2022. But To get to the root of this dispute between Lebanon and Israel over these gas fields, you have to understand there's a lot of historical context for the situation with Israel and that whole region of the Levant. when I say the Levant, I mean Israel, Jordan, Lebanon, Syria, Egypt, that that, uh, little cluster of nations right there, the quote-unquote holy land. Now, two things I have to say about this. One, uh, even at my best, has well— as I can glibly gloss over centuries of history, even I can't make this a single episode um, a topic. There's just too much to go into, and I feel like you need to go really far back. Because when I say things in the Middle East are fucked up, uh, you're probably not realizing just how far back and how ridiculous it is. So we're going to do the whole thing. So this could be a two-parter. This is part one. We're going to cover a lot of history this episode, so uh, <laughs> saddle up for that. And, um, and yeah, item number two is how much history? Well, we're going to start at the year 900 B.C. That's right. I know what you're thinking. Holy hell, Jordan. You're going kind of going a little far back there, aren't you? Yes. Yes, I am. So get your coffee. Let's have the inaugural sip because you're going to need it. Tonight we've got a... Uh, mm, I've got some sort of a um, a, uh, a nutmeg uh, roast sort of thing going on here. It's pretty good. It's pretty tasty, and we're gonna we're gonna need all of this to go through nine nine hundred plus what 2,900 years of history is what we're doing. Yeah, you better load up on your caffeine. Mmm, delightful, perfect. All right, let's get into it. So, nine hundred B.C. Israel, as we know it today, was originally two different nations. The Kingdom of Israel, which contained most of the coastline, the Golan Heights, Jaffa, modern-day Tel Aviv, and some areas around there, and then the smaller Kingdom of Judea, which contained Jerusalem and some surrounding lands. Now, I am sticking uh, to the sorts of facts that can at least be independently verified archaeologically and historically. I'm not delving into any sort of uh biblical history or um, you know mythology history or or anything like that or tradition or anything. Uh, this strictly, as far as we know, this is what we know for a fact and that is there were two kingdoms and to our knowledge from a scientific standpoint, there's been no evidence they were ever a united kingdom at this point. Now, at any rate, most of the nations in that part of the world were very small tribal organizations. Um, there weren't really big nation states as we think of them today when you go back to 900 B.C. That just wasn't a thing. Um, However, it was starting to form, the concept of it. And more specifically, uh, this would become an issue for um, the kingdoms of Judea and Israel because uh, the power that was rising at the time was the Neo-Assyrian Empire. And by 720, they would expanded all the way... um, Uh, from the Fertile Crescent into, uh, effectively, right there at the border of um, the Mediterranean, which meant that they came into conflict with the Kingdom of Israel, which was fully destroyed and conquered by the Neo-Assyrians. The smaller Kingdom of Judea actually bent the knee and became a vassal state paying tribute to the Neo-Assyrians rather than getting wiped out. So they continued to exist for a couple hundred more years. But that didn't last. By uh, 587 B.C., uh, there was a bit of a civil war within the Neo-Assyrian Empire, and the Babylonians rose up and managed to take control of it. The Babylonians were also a client state of the Assyrians, but they basically just—and I'm condensing a lot of history here—but they basically rose up and took control of the Neo-Assyrian Empire, declared it the Neo-Babylonian Empire, and you know all of the all of the parts that were to pay homage to Babylon now rather than to um, Assyria. At any rate. The kingdom of Judea, thinking this might be a good opportunity to have a little bit of that independence that they remember so fondly from a few hundred years ago, decided to try and rise up in a revolt and take their independence by force against the new Babylonian leadership. That did not go well. Uh, The Babylonian king at the time was Nebuchadnezzar, which you've probably heard the name in some context or another over the years. At any rate, he did not much take um, kindly to that and proceeded to... Marshal his armies, march into the kingdom of Judea and bring it to heel. He crushed it, He took over Jerusalem, sacked huge parts of the city, destroyed King Solomon's temple, which is a, well, I mean, you all know what relevance that has to various different religions. But in A, variety, he wiped that out, and then also proceeded to um cart off huge amounts of the Jewish population in the region back to um back to Babylon. Uh, in captivity, which is something that, again, there's records of in Babylonian uh, tablets and that kind of thing. So, at any rate, uh, this was the status quo for the next, uh, give or take, 50 years. By 539 BC, the Neo-Babylonian Empire was um, uh, at war with another rising power, the Persian Empire, which is the precursor to modern-day Iran. So the Persians managed to wipe out the Babylonians, take over the Babylonian Empire, which included obviously these Jewish provinces, and um, the new Persian emperor actually decided to grant the Jewish captivities and populations freedom to return to their ancestral homelands uh, around Jerusalem and the kingdom of Judea and Israel. Now, the difference is they had to remain a province of the Persian Empire, which they agreed to, um, but they were allowed to go back and return. So they did. Now this status quo lasted for about 200 years or so and then in 30 or excuse me in uh, 332 BC there was yet another war of conquest this one by the famous Greek general king Alexander the Great he conquered the whole region as part of his campaign to fight the Persians now Alexander conquered a huge swath of the known world as we've all heard many many times and maybe he was a great warrior and a good general and tactician and all of that. But one thing he was certainly shit at was establishing any kind of actual governmental structure that could survive past his own heartbeat. Um, Upon his death, he basically left his empire to, I think it was four of his close friends or generals. And um, pretty much within their lifetimes, the entire Alexandrian Empire proceeded to completely just collapse and implode on itself. So, um... Eventually, after his death, and by 167 BC, uh, the Jewish provinces rose up in revolt and overthrew their Greek overlords because their Greek overlords were too busy fighting amongst themselves and watching their little empire crumble. All right, so the problem is this independence did not last long. They got their independence in um, 167, declared themselves a unified kingdom of Judea, and assumed that they were going to live happily ever after. They didn't. Okay, so about 100 years later, in 63 BC, there was yet another army rolling through the neighborhood and planting their banner in things and declaring it theirs. And if you guess the Roman Empire, you're right. The Roman Empire rolled in 63 BC, invaded the whole area, and declared it as a province of the Greater Roman Empire. Uh, Because the Romans were really good at conquering shit, as they did quite quite a while. And, better than Alexander, they managed to hold it together for several centuries. In fact, that whole area was held by the Romans until 628 A.D. or uh, A.C. or whatever the common era, C.E., whatever the new thing is they're doing. I was raised on A.D. and B.C., so that's just what's in my head. It's what's going to be. Deal with it. Okay. At any rate, so 623 A.D. Uh, is how long the Romans managed to hold it. Now, For the most part, you can look up all the history of how good or bad things were under Roman rule in that part of the world. It is what it is. The Romans um, were notoriously heavy-handed, shall we say, in putting down revolts. And so um, that's why they were quite good at holding on to things that didn't want to be there for a while. At any rate, the Roman Empire started to have its own problems, and... Uh, By pretty much the 500 AD range, the empire had split into two. You had the Eastern Roman Empire and the Western Roman Empire, and the whole thing was kind of starting to disintegrate from the inside out. And um, the Eastern Roman Empire sort of metamorphosized into uh, what was called the Byzantine Empire, which is based around Constantinople and includes Turkey and uh, the Levant and all of the sort of, you know, all of that sort of eastern half of the Roman Empire became the Byzantine Empire. Now the Byzantine Empire, um, admittedly, did not um, did not hold that for too terribly long. Um, they held on to it for as long as they could, but by um, and which was not terribly long. By uh, you know they got it in 628. By 641. Uh, there were a lot of problems rising up against the Byzantines. And specifically, the problem was the Islamic Caliphate. So at this point, Islam was a fairly new religion on the block. It uh, manifest itself in uh, modern-day, I think it's Saudi Arabia, and sort of spread like wildfire throughout there. And um, it, in its early history, was a relatively unified um, combination of both a faith and also like a nation-state, like they were conquering things and expanding very aggressively. And, um, you know, by by 620, um, by 641, they rolled up to the doorstep of what's modern-day Israel, Lebanon, Jordan, and all of that, and uh, found the Byzantine Empire was already starting to uh, contract and um, collapse. And, you know, the Islamic Caliphates just took the region and uh, consolidated control over huge amounts of the Middle East. And we could do a whole show talking about that, but we're not going to. The point is, um, in the What do we got here? Less than a thousand years of history that we've glossed over in the past 13 minutes, you've got the Levant conquered by, uh, let's see, the Neo-Assyrians, the Neo-Babylonians. Then we've got, what, the Persians, Alexander the Great, the Roman Empire, the Byzantine Empire, and now the Islamic Caliphate. So in less than a thousand years, we've covered seven different invaders taking the land. And the what, they had independence, you know, that whole region of territories had independence for what, about 100 years altogether in there? Not a great track record of being on their own. But here we are. So, at any rate, uh, the Islamic Caliphates, they held the lands from 641 until basically the 1000 AD mark. Um, This status quo lasted for several centuries, but by the 11th century, the Pope of the Catholic Church, yeah, we're just hitting it all, they decided along with several monarchs in Europe that it was just downright bullshit that these Islamic caliphates controlled the Christian holy lands and that something needed to be done about it. And by something, obviously an armed religious war, aka welcome to the Crusades. So... In 1074, the first of eight crusades to conquer the Levant and liberate the Holy Land from the Islamic Caliphates was launched. So the stated goal here was obviously to liberate the region and also to, um, to uh, secure the Holy Lands for Christianity and um, for the glory of God or whatever. Um, the popes back then had a very, you know, it was, it was a different time. It was a different time. Let's say that. It was a different time. At any rate, the Crusaders rolled in there um, with cavalry and, you know, armor and knights and all these sorts of things, and uh, they proceeded to begin conquering huge chunks of the Levant. Um, And, of course, Europeans rolling in there did what they always do, and that is they tried to bring a piece of home with them. So as they started conquering chunks of the Levant, the Europeans actually would establish kingdoms and counties and duchies and all of this, like they were back in France or Germany or England. I mean, they would just be like, oh, we conquered this region, um, this knight who did really well in battle, congratulations, you're now the Duke of Tripoli or uh, the Prince of Jerusalem or whatever. Um, and so they started establishing like these actual like houses over regions of the Middle East that were by these European knights who had won big battles or had done whatever, and we're now like declaring these these new kingdoms under it was it's crazy it was very Games of Thronian, it was very very wild, um, at any rate. So um, there were two Crusader states that are especially relevant to the larger picture, and yeah, we will eventually talk about the uh, the oil and gas fields, but that's not going to be until episode two. Spoiler alert, but. All of this history is quite relevant to that conflict. Trust me, we will get there. So, at any rate, um, two kingdoms were founded during this time that were especially relevant. One is the Kingdom of Jerusalem, which would exist from 1099 to 1291 and controlled most of what we considered modern-day Israel and Jordan. The other is the County of Tripoli, which Consists of most of modern-day Lebanon and parts of Syria, and it would last from 1102 to 1289. Again, these Crusader states were literally just some knight took a lot of land and then just declared himself the king of Jerusalem and that he owned this, and it was the you know the the kingdom of Jerusalem or the county of Tripoli, and um, you know there we are. And um, for a few hundred years, like, this was a thing. Like, it was a very prestigious thing to be, you know, the the king of Jerusalem. I mean, for a Christian knight to have that was quite a big, hairy deal. At any rate, at any rate, uh, the Crusades would ultimately prove to be very expensive, both in terms of treasure and lives and uh, the massive amounts of bad blood that it would cause between Christians and Muslims. And ultimately, they did very little because by 1291, the Crusader states were reconquered by the caliphate and would be held until 1516 when the expanding Ottoman Empire out of modern-day Turkey would conquer the whole region and make them provinces under the Ottoman Empire. Um, So there we go. Now we're up to the Ottomans. And the stories of the Crusades and the battles for Jerusalem and all that is absolutely fascinating, but I'm not going to do a huge deep dive into that because it really just, so I, even I can't loosely tie that to oil and gas. So, um, you know, maybe one day I'll have a reason to to wedge that into an episode. Um, but at any rate, so there we go. By the early 1500s, the Ottoman Empire has conquered the region and the Ottomans would hold on to it for the next basically 500 years. Okay. Now, it's important to note that during this time, during all this time, there was a huge diaspora of Jews leaving the region. And this becomes really important to the modern day Middle Eastern conflict. All these invasions, all these conquests, all these things, huge chunks of the Jewish population were scattered out into the world. Um, Europe and what would become Russia and just other parts of the Middle East and all this. I mean, it was just, it was a war torn region and people were leaving. I mean, that's all there is to it. And um, the Crusades were, in possibly bloody conflicts. And um, and so, yeah, it just it did not go well. The Ottomans also, kind of like the Romans, held it, the early days of the Ottomans anyways, held with a very strict iron fist. If there was any kind of revolt, there were going to be mass retaliations against the civilian population, and that's kind of how the Ottomans held on to that very troublesome part of the world for fucking 500 years. So, at any rate... When you um when you get to about the 1880s, uh, you start seeing a lot of the anti-Semitic, anti-Jewish pogroms happening in Eastern Europe, uh, where people are paranoid and, you know, things aren't going well for them and all of that. And by 1881, there was an Austro-Hung- uh, Austro-Hungarian journalist, Theodor Herzl, who is credited with founding the political concept or idea of Zionism, which is basically uh, his definition was the creation of a Jewish state back in the historical land of Israel that should be hounded, founded for all their people to return to. And I know this is a massively broad topic, and I'm skimming over tons of history. But again, I've got about 30 to 40 minutes to do this. So, you know, I'm going to do the best I can here. Uh, but obviously, yes, I, I'm truncating quite a lot here. At any rate, this is the first instance of the sort of the concept of zionism being founded or propagated um now not much would happen with it for several decades but but it was out there in the world people were talking about you know what would happen if you know all the the jewish communities moved back and uh, tried to found their own nation state and all of this and uh, you know it was just it was there was there was a thing Then you've got World War I, which kicks off 1914 to 1918, and the Allies, after winning the war, decided that the best course of action was to seriously penalize any country that was part of the Central Powers, which included the Ottoman Empire. And as we all know, these incredibly harsh penalties would never come back to haunt the world, as long as you don't count the 1930s or 1940s. At any rate, the penalty for the Ottoman Empire was complete dismantlement. That's right. For being on the wrong side of that war, the U.S., Britain, France, uh, they decided, uh, you don't get to be a country anymore. We're going to break up the Ottoman Empire, and we are going to basically give these territories to other people, and you don't get to be in charge anymore. The uh, sultan was removed from office. Um, The Allman Empire just ceased to exist, and it was broken up into pieces and basically auctioned off to the victors. Now, keep in mind, uh, during this time, you had the sort of uh, prequeled the UN called the League of Nations that was established, that was kind of trying to be like the, the responsible big boy, well, you know, we're um, we're the League of Nations, and we're going to uh, you know create a lasting peace, and this will be the last war of all time. It didn't work that way. Uh, but at any rate, the League of Nations kind of uh, handed out what were called mandates. And mandates were when a territory was conquered or was taken or carved off of a nation that existed during... Uh, the opposing side of the war, in this case, the Ottoman Empire, they would take a chunk of it, they would call it a mandate, and they would issue it to one of the victors. And the premise behind this was that it wasn't a colony, it wasn't a full-time possession. Instead, you have a mandate to hold this land and develop it and get the people ready to uh, be independent and to be their own nation. When you think they're ready, you're supposed to give them independence. Um, In other words, it was basically a fucking colony. Um, At any rate, so what we have here is that the areas that constitute modern-day Israel and Jordan were put into a League of Nations mandate called the Mandate of Palestine, and it was awarded to Britain, okay? The modern-day country of Lebanon uh, and a good chunk of Syria was packaged and was awarded to France as a mandate, okay? Now, These mandates uh, were to be, quote, held in trust by an advanced nation who, by reasons of their resources experience, geopolitical status, can best undertake responsibility for them. So basically, yeah, they just became colonies of the victorious nations until such time as the trustee nation felt that the mandate was prepared to stand on their own as an independent nation if and when that would ever happen. Uh, Who invented this brilliant, definitely not colonialism, wink situation? Of course, my perennial enemy, President Woodrow fucking Wilson. Our boy Woody Wilson, he was responsible for the mandate scheme. Thanks, Woody. You, uh, You really helped kick off some shit in the Middle East for the next couple of centuries after this one, but we'll get there. Okay, so... The mandate of Lebanon was held by the French until 1946, a year after World War II, when the French colonial empire was basically dissolving and the French were rebuilding after World War II. And and we kind of know eh, France had a little bit of a, um, I mean, let's face it, Europe had a bit of a rough go at World War II, but France was in no condition to try and hold together a far-flung continental empire, a colonial empire. And so they were trying to Offload places they thought were expensive or too problematic. And (laughs) weirdly enough, the Middle East fit that bill. So in 1946, after World War II, France basically just said, Yeah, you know what, Lebanon, congratulations, you're independent, fucking go forth and have fun. Best of luck to you, you're not our problem anymore. All right, Israel had a little bit more of a difficult time, or the Palestinian mandate, I should say. Uh, And the reason is the Brits are notorious for trying to hold on to colonies for just as long as they could they weren't quite as willing to throw in the towel as the french were no world war ii surrender joke there but um it, it did kind of work didn't it anyway so the brits tried to hold on to it for a few extra years and um it didn't really go super well for the french um or excuse me for the british um One, there was a lot of confusion about what to do with this mandate. I mean, unlike India, unlike other parts of the world, there wasn't a ton of money in the mandate of Palestine. And the Brits were notorious for kind of having very lucrative, business-oriented colonies. You know, that was kind of their thing, mercantilism and all that. Um, At any rate, there have been all these calls to create a Jewish nation state. And after World War II, they kind of thought, well, yeah, you know, maybe – maybe that's our way out of this thing. Maybe that's the solution to our problem. We just make that the Jewish nation. We let everybody move there, and then we get the hell out of Dodge, and it's their problem, and it's not part of the British Empire, and we don't have to pay for anything. Cool. Um, The problem with this was the Palestinians. That's right. Now, I say that, of course, as I've mentioned before, my family is Palestinian. We am um, a first-generation American, so obviously there's that. But um, the Palestinians, to give you a very brief idea here, are the folks who didn't leave that region during this diaspora. The other half of that is they aren't Jewish uh, culturally or religiously or anything like that. Um, but they're the folks that were pretty much there the whole time. Um, the issue the British were running into is if you try and create this Jewish nation, what about the Palestinians who had been here for the past 2,000 years plus who didn't leave and you didn't have this diaspora? What do you do with them? Well, no one had a really good answer to that was the problem. So I'm to get a sip of coffee as we uh, just keep plowing forward in this. Mm. The problem is there was a bit of a a vibe happening here, right? People were starting to think that there was going to be this new Jewish nation state, and Jewish folks from across the world were kind of slowly trickling back into uh, the Palestinian mandate, and the Brits kind of couldn't quite figure out what to do with it. So they offered one proposal um, when it came time for the mandate to end, that Israel could be one country, and then what would become Jordan would eventually have the Palestinian part of Israel. Um, But the Arabs didn't like that plan. And so um, things proceeded with the status quo until the mandate ended. Now, by the end of World War II, the Jewish population in this Palestinian mandate was becoming both sizable and tired of British rule. and There actually was a resistance movement that began attacking British soldiers and bombing British government buildings. Now, given there had been two world wars, the rest of the British Empire was being piecemeal dismantled, um and the general bankruptcy and financial crisis in Britain uh, that she was facing in 1948, the occupation and the Palestinian mandate were becoming deeply unpopular with the British public. It was just one more money pit where people were dying and was costing a lot of cash to hold on to, and for just no economic reason that anybody could tell. I mean, after all, it wasn't like there was any oil there, so who cares, right? Okay, so... Part of the problem was how to split the mandate and allow both Palestinians to have a government and a state, since they've pretty much been there the whole time, and how to deal with the Jewish refugees who were trying to avoid all the bullshit that happened to them in Europe um, that they were trying to escape from. And they were now flooding into the region, and considering how things went in World War II, they were really wanting their their own establishment. So... Keep in mind, by 1947, the Arabs of Palestine constituted two-thirds majority of the population and owned 94% of the land. So they weren't exactly thrilled when the British decided to create a Jewish-run government and completely restructure the land ownership in the country. Now, to be fair, it wasn't the Israelis' fault. The Brits decided to do what they always did and draw some lines on a map and decide, fuck it, good enough. Now... I say that glibly. Uh, Listen, I mean, if you look at the history of Africa, the history of the Middle East, and and not just the Brits, by the way. I mean, this is any colonial empire. Um, They just arbitrarily put lines on a map, decided this is probably good enough, and then, you know, popped off for a spot of tea. Don't get me wrong. The U.S. has its own share of problems they've made in the Middle East that I've detailed many times on this show. But in this case, the Brits, and they just kind of, got us the rest of the way into this one. So, at any rate, the UN created what was called Resolution 181, which effectively called for a two-state solution. The West Bank uh, was going to be given to the Palestinians, (coughs) as well as the Gaza Strip. Um, Now, both of those on the original UN map that they drew were larger than they are today, um, and the Arab population was also given a large block of land in the north around um, uh, Acre and, and Jerusalem was going to be an international city and a free port belonging to no nation because of its historical and religious significance to multiple religions. The Arab League, which was sort of a economic and quasi-defensive pact of Arabic nations in that part of the world, all rejected it on the grounds that most of the land was being given to a minority population of the influx of the Jewish folks that were moving out there. Um, But regardless, the Brits went ahead with it anyway. 15 May uh, 1948, the British Mandate of Palestine ended, and the state of Israel came into existence as a legal entity. Now, that obviously all went well, Um, except that within 24 hours of their independence from the mandate, the countries of Egypt, Syria, Jordan, and Iraq all declared war on Israel and invaded, deciding that they were just going to wipe this country off the map before it even got out of the cradle. This would be known as the Arab-Israeli War of 1948. Now, eventually, Yemen, Monaco, Saudi Arabia, and the Sudan would jump in on this, and the newly independent Lebanon would decide to get in on the fun by attacking Israel as well. So, as you can see, the modern nation-states of Israel and Lebanon have a far-going-back conflict going back to the first day of Israel's existence. Um, And that whole region has been riddled with strife from literally the word go back in 900 BC. At any rate, despite being massively outnumbered and with a year, the war came to a de facto end with an Israeli victory. Uh, At the end of the day, Jordan annexed the West Bank, including uh, eastern Jerusalem, and um, Egypt occupied um, much uh, a much smaller portion of the Gaza Strip, which was, um, was left. And there was no Palestinian area around uh, Acre you know, that was just taken out. So this was sort of the de facto armistice line um, as things were uh, for the time being. And that seemed fine, I guess. Um, at any day, uh, rate, Things remained tense, to say the least, and there was peace for about, uh, not quite 20 years. By 1969, Egypt massed its army on the border with Israel, looking to give it another go, and decided to block Israel's access to the Red Sea, and kicked off what was known as the Six-Day War. Jordan, Syria, and Iraq decided to declare war and back Egypt up, and they attacked Israel as well. And this conflict actually went even worse for the Arab forces, than the last time they tried this. Um, in this instance, uh, the Israeli forces just took the eastern half of Jerusalem. They fully occupied the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. They then proceeded to invade Egypt and conquer the entire Sinai Peninsula. And then they proceeded to uh, do a counter-invasion of Syria and took the Golan Heights from them. I mean, Israel nearly doubled its territorial footprint in the span of the Six-Day War. Is wild. I mean, just... Crazy, crazy uh, success. Um, At any rate, uh, deciding that they wanted to get their lost territories back, Egypt and Syria launched yet another surprise attack on Israel in 1973 during the holiday of Yom Kippur, known as uh, creatively the Yom Kippur War. And while initially the Israelis were caught flat footed, eventually Israel achieved yet another military victory. Now, Lebanon was not directly involved in that conflict. Um, primarily because they didn't have the money to prosecute a war and they weren't frankly in the mood to get their ass kicked by Israel yet again. So um, they just they just didn't uh, engage in that. At any rate, with Israel effectively occupying the lands that were supposed to be part of this two-state solution with the Palestinians, a number of guerrilla fighters organized and formed the PLO, the Palestinian Liberation Organization. Now, their state objective was a holy war against Israel until such time as the Palestinian state was created in place of Israel. And this is a key thing alert here. The initial stated goal of the PLO was not necessarily a two-state solution, but a one-state solution. Their contention was that regardless of what the UN decided, regardless of whether or not Jewish people were moving to the neighborhood, it didn't really matter They were going to have one nation called Palestine, and it was going to be there, and that was that end of story. There was no Israel. This obviously did not leave a lot of room for negotiation if you're Israeli, and you've put a lot of effort in trying to hold together a new nation that Britain just basically tossed you the keys to and said, best of luck. So this puts these guys on two polar opposite sides of a very complicated issue, and this would obviously continue for another uh, several decades, which we'll get to here in a bit. But at any rate, um, the PLO instantly went into kind of attack mode. They started bombing things and doing strikes and oftentimes hitting civilian targets against the Israelis, which (sighs) ain't good. It's not good at all. Can't be doing that. Um, in 1966, civilian bombings in Jerusalem, there was the 1968 LL Flight 253, which was an attack where PLAO uh, fighters smuggled themselves into an airport in Athens, Greece, and machine-gunned a number of passengers of a Israeli civilian airline while it was in layover. That's bad shit, no doubt. Now, two days later, the Israeli Defense Force launched Operation Gift, a special forces strike at Beirut International Airport in Lebanon, where they destroyed 14 civilian aircraft and two passenger jets, two cargo jets. And, and, and we've got to understand this for a second, right? Israel gets hit with a terror attack by the PLO. They're going to retaliate, obviously. Israel kind of takes the old Roman approach, ironically enough, and says, we're going to over-retaliate. We're going to hit you harder than you hit us really bad. You machine gun some passengers in an airline. Okay, cool. We're going to blow up a uh, baker's dozen of uh, civilian airlines. And they did this in Beirut, which obviously is the capital of Lebanon, which will get us further down this road. Now, it should be noted that the jets they blew up were airliners, but there weren't many people on them at the time. Um, I think it's only something like four or ten people died in that strike. Um, they hit them after hours. But the point is, there was a lot of collateral damage that they generated. So, yeah, this is, this is the start of a tit-for-tat between the PLO and the Israeli government that will continue on literally to this day and quite aggressively. So this seems like a good place as any to pause for the evening. Um, Moving on from here, we will cover the rest of the, the 70s, the 80s, 2000s, and then we'll talk about how these things are impacting the current negotiations over these oil fields. But as you can see from pretty much day one, Lebanon and Israel have had a complicated history. And, and one thing I do have to say before we call night, why this happened in Beirut. Why did Israel strike um, this airport in, in the Lebanese capital to get back at the PLO? Well, that's because the PLO had basically moved into Lebanon. Lebanon was quite poor. It was quite disorganized after the French removal. Um, things were were very shaky at the time there were a lot of territories they just couldn't exercise any real control over and so the PLO plo had set up basically camps all over the southern countryside where they could launch raids into israel and so they were basically using lebanon as their training ground and their base of operations for this you know uh fight against israel and that made Lebanon a target, and Lebanon was in no position to do anything about it, unfortunately. They just didn't have the the wherewithal. They didn't have the governmental power to be able to stop this. They couldn't control the countryside, um, which kind of puts them in a bad position because these – like, I get the concept of a retaliatory strike. Granted, I think everyone goes way overboard with these things um, when they were happening, but that's beside the point. But I I, I get it. You got hit, you're going to hit back. The problem is that Lebanon initially, as a nation, was not the aggressor here. It was this other organization, the PLO, that was fighting, but Lebanon was getting caught holding the bag for that because they were hanging out there, and... They couldn't do anything about it. They were in no position to—their military was in shambles. They couldn't do anything. And so this just generated a ton of bad blood that would fester and fester and fester until we get to the modern era. But like I said, we'll cover all that in the next part, and um, and we will eventually get to those, uh, those gas fields. Scout's honor. We'll get there. I wasn't a scout, but I think I'll just say that anyway. Um, but hopefully you guys like this one. Hopefully— uh, that was interesting. And like I said, we'll get to part two uh, next week, and um, we'll get into it. and It'll be good stuff. Uh, in the meantime, this is Jordan Driscoll reminding you that unlike Hezbollah, I've never been declared a terrorist organization. Spoiler alert for part two. See you guys on the next one. Join us again next week on the Oil & Gas Geopolitics Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. To learn more, go to OGGN.com.